Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. Uh, But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have these hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. couple of weeks since we've launched our new website. We've had several new folks uh, tune in to listen to us uh, to do our best to bring logic and research to these hard social conversations. So if that's you, welcome. We're glad you're here. This week, we're moving from one big headline topic to the next as we pivot from talking about critical race theory uh, and focus our attention on the insurrection at the Capitol. Special committee hearings have begun, and lawmakers in Washington are trying to get to the root of what exactly happened on January 6th. But this episode isn't going to focus on a play-by-play of that day's events. There will be plenty of that from every news outlet in America as the committee hears testimony from those who were on the ground that day. However, that said, I am going to take a moment and ask those of you who may not have had the time to listen to the first committee hearing to go ahead and find the time to do that. The testimony of those officers, the strength of the video evidence, the passion and fervor with which they spoke, all make it very clear what was happening on that day. If you hold on to any doubt about what really went on or how bad it really was, if you happen to believe that, like Representative Andrew Clyde, the insurrectionists were just another group of tourists, watch the testimony. And I also want to just go the teensiest bit rogue here and give a very brief summary on how we ended up with a House Select Committee on the January 6th attack on the Capitol um, and not a 9-11 style independent commission because there's already a propaganda campaign about the current commission, calling it a a democratic trap or Pelosi's commission in an attempt to detract from anything that it might uncover. The problem with these attacks, and what I think is very important to stress here, despite the intended focus of this episode, is that there was a bipartisan agreement already set up to establish an independent commission. However, it failed in the Senate, as Republicans withheld the votes to bring the bill up for debate. They did this via a filibuster, which, if you aren't clear on what the modern filibuster is or what it looks like or how it works, uh, we have an episode about that, so you should check that out. Um, In response, the House voted on a bipartisan basis to form a House Select Committee 
to investigate the January 6th insurrection attempt. The formation of this committee was supposed to have eight members selected by Pelosi and five selected by Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Pelosi actually intended to appoint a Republican herself, meaning that the 13-member panel would have had a seven to six split between the Democrats and Republicans, respectively. However, it immediately began being called into question and being accused of being partisan, etc. Everybody is shocked. This wasn't aided when McCarthy elected to nominate Representative Jim Jordan and Jim Banks among his five picks for the committee. Pelosi rejected these nominations, as was within her power, even though it was a extraordinary maneuver, citing, among other things, statements and actions made by the pair. Jordan and Banks voted against um, certifying the election, as did one of the other nominees, Troy Nels, but he was actually accepted by Pelosi. Um, nominating those two, the two of uh, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, to the committee would be, I think, a bit like asking a toddler to investigate who trashed their room. You know, it's doubtful it would be productive, <laughs> and it would likely only make matters worse, is what I'm getting at. Um, now, it's at this point that I think Republicans in the House lost the right to criticize uh, this committee in good faith. Because instead of nominating two different Republicans, McCarthy just pulled all of his nominations, leaving only Pelosi's original Republican nominee, who was Liz Cheney, uh, on the committee. Adam Kinzinger, a Republican from Illinois, uh, was later added by Pelosi. So as things stand, and I don't know if there's any, I don't know if this is going to change, but um, right now there are two Republicans and seven Democrats on the committee. Why am I talking about this? Why am I outlining this? Because I want to make it crystal clear that the self-same Republicans who are attempting to preemptively discredit this committee had every opportunity to take a different approach, either by forming an independent commission or by playing ball and suggesting better people to the yeah. House Select Committee that were, I don't know, mature enough to wear a suit coat while in Congress. That is unfair of me. <laughs> Jim Jordan might just struggle with multiple layers of clothing. They could have nominated people who wouldn't fairly obviously be working to obstruct the committee's business. Instead, they chose to withdraw, to attack, and to serve their own political interests, not the interests of their constituents. Because make no mistake, it would have been serving their constituents to sit on that committee, to work honestly and aggressively to uncover the truth to challenge the assumptions in good faith, and to dig for the most unvarnished facts they could find. That would have been serving their constituents. But that's not what they did, and I just want people to remember that. But no, that's not what we're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> that aside, um, we don't intend to focus on the daily drama revealed through the House Select Committee. There are any number of podcasts out there that can and will provide insightful commentary on what's happening. Uh, we are more than confident that you can find those, those podcasts or those other outlets, should you so choose. Instead, we want to apply our research skills to a very specific conversation that seems to have illuminated the perspective of many who identify with the rhetoric and the people who stormed the Capitol. Y'all... 
this week we are breaking down a Twitter monologue. Normally, we wouldn't consider a Twitter rant anything like news, but this thread caught the attention of everyone's favorite conservative entertainment presenter and was broadcast to that show's 4 million average nightly viewers. It's been retweeted more than 17,000 times and earned its author, Daryl Cooper, tens of thousands of new followers. But more importantly, it has been shared by regular folks with conservative perspectives who point to it and say, yeah, this, this is how I feel too. Even those who openly denounce the behavior of the insurrectionists on Capitol Hill are saying, I understand why they felt like they needed to do it, and this is why. Plus also, we were kind of dragged directly into this conversation by the collar of our shirts and a company Slack channel. One of my co-workers, with whom I share very little political common ground, but a solid amount of mutual respect, posted this in the Slack channel that we have dedicated to current events and discussion topics. And he said, If you haven't seen this Twitter thread, I strongly encourage you to read it to better understand the perspective of many on the right. I've never seen a more cogent summation of all the events that lead up to 1-6-2021, as well as the perspectives of so many on the right, including myself. Please do yourself a favor and read this. And then he gave us the link. I scanned the conversation that came after, knowing full well that I work with a lot of really traditionally conservative guys and not expecting to see any opposing viewpoints. But I hadn't decided yet whether I was going to jump in on the conversation. Um, And then a little later in the day, I heard that familiar knocking ring in my headphones. And so I opened my Slack app and sure enough, he'd called me out directly. He said, is there anyone here that disputes these facts? When he put facts in quotes, I do consider his message to be entirely factual. So I'd like to hear any perspective that might prove him mistaken. And then he tagged me. Now, he knows that we do this podcast. And we've talked about it at length. And he knew that I was not going to come back to him with a flippant response of any kind. But I don't know if he thought we'd devote an entire episode or two, or maybe three, to this conversation. So, at ConservativeDevGuy5309, this one's for you. Mm, I grimace so hard when I see that he thinks this entire thing is factual. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say that. Um, we're, we'll get into that before we jump in <laughs> again, <laughs> again. <laughs> eventually wait, wait, we'll get there. I swear we'll get there. Yeah. Um, and we start breaking things down. We want everyone to know that nothing we say here tonight or, or when you're listening to this is a, is a personal attack. Unless, unless we say it is clearly and directly, you'll know, uh, we have two goals here. A to understand how a person gets to the mental and emotional point that it seems many politically conservative Americans have reached. And two, to use our best research skills to assess the claims that Cooper makes as fact so that we can dispute or affirm them. We're not here to make anyone feel stupid. Just the opposite, really. Um, We want to make everyone listening smarter. We want to add verifiable truth to this conversation so that those who believe the same things as at conservative dev guy 5309 can know whether their beliefs are based in reality. In our first episode addressing conspiracy theories, we talked about the reasons that people believe things um, that to others seem convoluted or ridiculous or even impossible. 
And our research showed that people's feelings, negative feelings primarily, predispose them to believing things that they might not otherwise. Anxiety, uncertainty, and lack of control are strong drivers for conspiracy acceptance. And Americans have been growing more anxious and uncertain year after year. In his Twitter monologue, <laughs> Cooper says, These are Tea Party people, the types who give their kids a pocket constitution for their birthday and have founding fathers' memes in their bios. He talks about how jarring it was for this ideological group to come to the realizations they did about what was going on in Washington. He said, it's hard to describe to people on the left who are used to thinking of government as a conspiracy, Watergate, Kanto uh, Pro, WMDs, etc. Um, how shocking and disillusioning this was for people who encouraged their sons to enlist in the army and hate people who don't stand for the anthem. And we can say with some certainty that his perspective on the mindset of these folks probably isn't wrong. If they truly believe all the things he lists as fact, then the process toward what happened in January probably feels pretty logical. This is why this conversation isn't about whether or not this is how they feel. It's about whether how they feel is the result of misinformation or worse, manipulation. You see, Cooper is using a super common and effective rhetorical strategy, or well, actually it's like a super mashup of a bunch of rhetorical strategies that combines fact with opinion to draw readers down the logical path that he wants them to follow. We alluded to it a little in our last episode on critical race theory when we were talking about how Christopher Rufo presented the truth about CRT in a way designed to manipulate the audience into accepting his interpretation of the information. In a little more detail, here's how it works. The process starts with a fact. It doesn't really have to be a true fact, but it does have to be something that, one, seems objectively provable, and two, that the reader accepts as fact. And then you add on an unprovable assumption or claim about the motivation for, or cause of, or reasoning behind, or even the impact of that fact. The key here is to choose things that are not easily provable, but that reinforce your perspective and are logically reasonable to your reader. For example, in one tweet he says, They knew it was unconstitutional. It's right there in plain English. But they knew the cases wouldn't see court until after the election. And what judge will toss millions of ballots because a governor broke the rules? The fact... I can't put enough <laughs> air quotes around that one. Um, in that sentence is that changes to voting procedure in some states were unconstitutional. Again... Heavy air right. quotes around fact in that particular sentence. The quote-unquote unprovable assumptions were, were that they, the governors, knew that the cases wouldn't see court until after the election and what judge will toss millions of ballots because a governor broke the rules. When you put the whole thing together, it sounds like the unprovable assumptions are just as credible as the fact given in context with them. And then the fact lends its credibility to the assumptions and makes them easier to believe. And this entire thread is full of that manipulation. We aren't going to call out each and every one of them as we go through the episode, 
But as you read this thread, look specifically for these pairings and consider whether or not he would be able to tell a convincing story without them. Actually, this is the perfect time for us to pause here for a dance break. Oh, and um, also for you to take a moment to read the thread that started all of this. If you're driving or making meatballs or something and it would be unwise for you to go read a Twitter thread right now, that's okay. We'll explain each of the claims in a way that makes sense if you haven't read it. But if you can, we'll just jam out over here for a minute until you get back. The Twitter handle is um, MartyrRMade, M-A-R-T-Y-R-M-A-D-E. So if you want to go check out his thread, I'm sure it will be right up there near the top. <laughs> um, so It's probably pinned. Now, yeah, now, 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 finally, I think we're ready to, to begin um, addressing these these quote-unquote facts. Um, as we're going through them, we're going to group some of the line items together uh, when it makes sense to save everyone some time and give things clearer context. So claims that one revolves around the 2016 presidential campaign. And the earliest accusations of cooperation between members of the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. Here's what Cooper says. Here are the facts, actual confirmed facts, that shape their perspective. Number one, the FBI slash etc. spied on the 2016 Trump campaign using evidence manufactured by the Clinton campaign. We now know that all involved knew it was a fake from day one. See Brennan's July 2016 memo, etc. Everyone involved lied about their involvement as long as they could. We only learned the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, paid for the manufactured evidence because of a court order. Comey, James Comey, um, FBI, that's what you need to know, <laughs> denied on TV knowing the DNC paid for it. Uh, when we have emails from a year earlier proving that he knew. This was true with everyone from CIA Director Brennan and Adam Schiff uh, who were on TV saying they'd seen clear evidence of collusion with Russia while admitting under oath behind closed doors that they hadn't, all the way down the line. In the end, we learned that it was all fake. We know as fact, A, the Steele dossier was the sole evidence used to justify spying on the Trump campaign. B, the FBI knew that the Steele dossier was a DNC op operation. And C, Steele's source told the FBI the info was unserious. <laughs> and D, they did not inform the court of any of this and kept spying. I wasn't sure when I was reading this if unserious was like, like industry jargon. Like it was like an actual term that people use or whether he just didn't, whether the grammar was a little off. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I'm I'm, I've never seen it anywhere outside of this, this yeah. thing. Not at work, not anywhere. I was like, okay. So. Okay, so, so Cooper, Whatever. he's coming right out of the gate with a doozy here. But this first set of claims is really what sets the stage for everything else. This set of ideas has been driving Republican talking points for more than five years now. According to Cooper, declassified documents from former CIA director John Brennan and former but then current director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe prove that the accusations of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence operatives during the 2016 election cycle 
were based on information falsified by the Clinton campaign for the express purpose of causing political scandal. He says that the Steele dossier was the sole evidence used to justify the investigations into the Trump campaign's activity and that it was treated as valid despite the fact that Steele's source said it was, quote, unserious. All right. In order to tease out the truth as much as any average Joe civilian can when dealing with national security and intelligence information, we're going to have to start with the Steele dossier. A 35-page document created by a former British intelligence officer named Christopher Steele. Steele was working for a U.S.-based private research organization called Fusion GPS that had been hired to gather opposition information on presidential candidate Donald Trump. Fusion was first hired by Republicans during Trump's primary run and then by Democrats during the main election cycle. Though it took some time to come out, it has been verified that the research conducted by Fusion GPS via Christopher Steele was commissioned by Mark Elias, an attorney for the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign. The founders of Fusion GPS maintained that there were strong silos around the engagement and that Clinton herself had no idea they had been engaged to do the research but it was commissioned for the benefit of her campaign nonetheless. Now, while that may sound particularly damning to those unfamiliar with how large-scale political campaigns are orchestrated, it's actually really run-of-the-mill. Remember, a Republican organization had hired Fusion to do opposition research on Trump in the primaries. And Cambridge Analytica, who was working with the Trump campaign, tried to obtain emails leaked during a Russian hack to use against the Clinton campaign. Opposition research is a highly lucrative in industry, and it's exploited in equal measure on both sides of the political aisle. Whether or not that is ethical or moral is another discussion, but acting like it is somehow atypical is just yeah. wrong. What is unusual in this case is that the raw research made its way to the public. This is the perfect place to pause and assess Cooper's first asserted fact. Again, heavy air quotes. Like most of the time when we say fact in this episode, guys, there's air quotes around it. Yeah, a lot of air quotes. Yes. <laughs> his, his first asserted fact was that the information was manufactured by the Clinton campaign, that it was completely made up, either by them or at their behest. And that, friends, is completely untrue. We now know, five years after we first heard about these claims, exactly how that information was produced. The information is available not just in the mainstream media, which many conservative folks don't trust, but in reports from the United States government itself. So that first fact that this was all manufactured by the Clinton campaign is fiction. Next, he makes some significant claims about everyone involved, knowing that the research was fake and paid for by the DNC. We've already established that the information wasn't faked by the Clinton campaign, even if they did pay Fusion GPS to gather it via steel. And without an extensive list of who, quote, everyone involved is, we can't fact-check exactly who did and didn't know about the commission. 
but we can try to examine his claims about those he mentions by name in this section. He says that James Comey publicly denied knowing that the DNC paid for the Steele research, but that there are emails to prove that he did know. And he says that CIA Director Brennan and Adam Schiff admitted under oath, quote, behind closed doors, that they had not seen evidence of the Trump campaign colluding with Russia, but said on television that they had. So let's start with Comey. We know that during an interview on Fox News in April 2018, James Comey told Brett Baer that he, quote, still didn't know for sure, end quote, that the DNC or the Clinton campaign had paid for the Steele research. But we also know that the FBI knew that the information was politically motivated when they officially obtained it in September of 2016, though it's not clear whether or not they knew of the funding source at that time. Reports about the research being paid for by Mark Elias began surfacing in late 2017, and we know that the founders of Fusion GPS have confirmed that funding explicitly. So it's pretty illogical that in 2018, the James Comey would still be unsure of that fact. However, we were not able to locate any emails or reports of emails indicating that he knew the DNC had funded the project earlier than that. So Cooper is making a fairly logical claim here that James Comey probably knew exactly where that funding came from at the time that he appeared on Fox News in April of 2018. Uh, but we could not back up what he calls a fact because we couldn't find those emails. Right. But what about Schiff and Brennan? In March 2017 on MSNBC, Schiff teased that he couldn't go into particulars, but there is more than circumstantial evidence now, end quote. In December 2017, he told CNN that collusion was a fact. Quote, the Russians offered help, the campaign accepted help, the Russians gave help, and the president made full use of that help. But transcripts released of many briefings that Schiff's committee received indicate that they were told by sources like former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper that there was not hard evidence. Clapper told them, I never saw any direct empirical evidence that the Trump campaign or someone in it was plotting slash conspiring rather, with the Russians to meddle with the election. That's not to say that there weren't concerns about the evidence we were seeing, anecdotal evidence, but I do not recall any instance where I had direct evidence of the content of these meetings. It's just the frequency and prevalence of them that was of concern. In all, there are 57 transcripts that have been released from that briefing. And we didn't have time to read all of them this week, frankly. But we'll keep plugging on this one. We suspect that what we have here is some selective reporting on what those transcripts contain, and that there was probably some conflicting testimony presented to be determined on the factiness of this yeah. one. Truthiness. The truthiness. One of them, the truthiness. Serious versus unserious. Truthy versus not truthy. Mm. All right. I will say, if... From a, oh boy, from a counterintelligence perspective, from a um, uh, behaviors that would alert 
a an investigation or an investigative authority on somebody's behavior um frequent communications with known actors of certain leanings would signal some pretty loud alarm bells like pretty critical that sort of stuff doesn't get um taken lightly at all good perspective that's all that's that's all that's all i'm gonna say well i know that's why i said any (laughs) average man jack civilian yeah (laughs) that's why Mm -hmm. i said that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep okay so moving on to Steele's report it contained a host of accusations against trump including claims that the russian government had information that could be used to manipulate or blackmail him comments on behaviors that Trump liked to engage in with Russian sex workers, and claims that he had ongoing ongoing intelligence relationships with Russia. The documents are basically comparable to a journalist's notes when they're reporting a story, including a transcription of anything and everything that could be relevant to the finished product. It was a collection of raw intelligence, gathered by Steele's sources and transcribed by Steele, intended to be passed along to the appropriate parties for investigation, for verification, and, if appropriate, for action. Um, It would drive us way too far into the weeds to address each of the allegations in that in detail, or even to talk about which ones have been corroborated or disproven at this point. Right. What is important to determine here is whether or not that document was used as the sole basis for intelligence-gathering measures, or... Spying, <laughs> as Cooper calls it, aimed at members of the Trump campaign. Thankfully, the government, through Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz, did that digging for us in an investigation conducted specifically on the use of surveillance on members of the Trump campaign. The report on that investigation was released in December 2019 and outlined the processes by which the decisions were made in regards to those surveillance efforts. The report makes it clear that the first steps towards investigating cooperation between members of the Trump campaign were taken after the FBI received information from a, quote, friendly foreign government that in May 2016, Trump campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos suggested, quote, quote, suggested to that government that the Trump team had received some kind of suggestion from Russia that it could assist this process with the anonymous release of information during the campaign that would be damaging to Mrs. Clinton and President Obama. George Papadopoulos, you will recall is Trump's famous coffee boy. (laughs) Yes. Oh, no, actually literally a foreign policy advisor whose job it is to know and discuss foreign affairs. (laughs) It's his actual job. His real job. He's not just the guy that goes goes and gets the lattes. Yeah, yeah, like, right. So this, this formal investigation that was started after this conversation was named Crossfire Hurricane, and it was opened officially on July 31, 2016, based on that foreign-friendly government information uh, to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign are witting of and or coordinating activities with the government of Russia. 
The Inspector General report outlines that the Crossfire Hurricane team opened the investigation in alignment with all the appropriate policies and procedures, and that there was no evidence of its initiation being politically motivated or biased. Now, during the course of that investigation, a man named Carter Page was implicated in some information gathered by the team, leading them to consider a surveillance request concerning him specifically. The investigative team broached the topic in August of 2016, but did not have enough corroborating information at that time to support the implementation of invasive surveillance measures. They also, um, during the course of this whole investigation, brought up the idea of surveilling many other members of the campaign. But Carter Page is the, is the guy you're going to hear about when, when people are talking about this investigation. Um, so then in September, the team, the Crossfire Hurricane team, officially received the information from Steele's reporting. And then that information was used to support their initial findings and permission was given for them to begin to surveil Carter Page. So we know from the Inspector General's report that the Steele documents were not the only piece of evidence used to justify the investigation into and surveillance of members of the Trump campaign and their connection to Russia. But they were key to their ability to carry out the full extent of that investigation. Also, the report makes clear that the FBI was aware of the fact that the information from Steele was commissioned for political purposes one of the arguments in Cooper's thread, but that the department is not required to disregard information that comes to them from biased sources or those with less than altruistic motivations. After all, they regularly deal with information from criminals and political operatives. They can't throw out everything that might be tainted. Instead, what happens is they end up having to bear the responsibility of vetting and investigating that information to ensure that it is reliable enough to act on. You can't take it at face value, but you can use it and corroborate it. And, and that's kind of where things fell apart here. There were significant problems with the way that the FBI handled the information in the Steele documents and how they pursued the investigation into Carter Page. The Inspector General's investigation found that 17 procedural issues, including some that would have precluded or ended the surveillance measures being used against Page, occurred. The report couldn't offer conclusions about why so many missteps were made at all levels of the FBI, but it did note that those questions did not give satisfactory answers for their misjudgments. So as we go to assess Cooper's claim here that the Steele dossier was the only justification for spying on the Trump campaign. Again, that one's just fiction. It's not true. We have FBI investigations that tell us that there were other things that contributed to the fact. But we do know that when they did begin that quote-unquote spying, they made pretty bad decisions about how to handle it and things were not conducted properly. So as to that aspect of this conversation, that's more truth than fiction. Right. Now, that is not to say that those missteps were nefarious, that they were intentional, or that they were meant to 
pursue a um, an investigation that should have been shut down. Oftentimes, in my experience, what happens is you have several conflicting authorities and several conflicting information sources to pursue any particular act or any particular action. And sometimes you do what you believe is legally permissible or legally allowed and pursue a course of action only to find out later or after the fact um, that there was a contravening um, law or regulation or executive order that says you couldn't do that. And that really throws a wrench in the works. Like you have to backtrack and do a lot of, of other work, use other sources um, to find the same information. But it would be a mistake to make the logical leap from there were issues with the investigation to those issues were intentional and nefarious and intended to target Trump and Trump's right. allies. There's nothing that we've seen in the investigation and the inspector general's documentation that says that it was intentional or nefarious. Now, there will likely be more research and more to come out about this as time goes on. Um, but as of this point, I think it is way too early to say that those were somehow intended to, to, to target uh, Carter Page or the Trump campaign or uh, Mr. Trump himself. Yeah, this is where, um, where factual reporting, factual accounting is way less fun because you don't get to put a spin on it. You know, when you read that report, yeah. it's like the most unsatisfying thing in the world because it ends with nobody was able to give us substantive answers about why they messed up. They just said that they messed up. And that's yeah. that's what we have right now. So um, it's very tempting to, to put a spin on it either way. But what yeah. we can go with is what we can go with. And that's just what we've got. Yeah. An unsatisfactory answer could literally be, I forgot. Yeah. I mean, it when they, when you use that phrasing, it means that there wasn't a reasonable answer, a reasonable explanation, but that, again, doesn't necessarily mean that it was nefarious right. or bad. So, um, again, we're tiptoeing a lot on this particular line here because the logic that we are trying to fight against here are the emotional appeals mm -hmm. that are that are being placed after semi-factual or or quote-unquote factual claims so we don't want to do the same thing ourselves and make a statement and then accidentally play into the right. and then this is the obvious conclusion from it right so I think we've hedged. It I think so there. too. And the, the link to this report is yeah. going to be in our show notes. Um, all of our sources always yes. are. So the executive summary does a great job of pointing out everything that anybody might need to know about what was going on here. So if you're interested in, in what exactly that looked like, go give that a read. Cool. Let's move on to claim two. Awesome. Um, claim two essentially is uh, collusion was used to scare people away from working in or with the Trump administration. Many quit because they were being bankrupted by legal fees. They knew their entire lives would be investigated. The Department of Justice, press, and 
government destroyed lives and actively subverted an elected administration. And, quote, this is where people whose political identity was largely defined by a naive belief in what they learned in civics class began to see the outline of a regime that crossed all institutional boundaries because it had stepped out of the shadows to unite against an interloper, end quote. That last <laughs> four words right there, <laughs> unite against an interloper. Critical stuff. We'll we will. We will get there. Uh, there is so much to address in this particular set of claims here that we really didn't know where to start. Uh, for one, this is one of the many claims that doesn't really have anything solid that can be investigated or researched. It relies on a lot of feelings, scary scenarios, and unprovable claims. For example, the initial claim can't be either proved or disproved at all. There is no way of proving that collusion was being used as a tool to scare people away from working in the Trump White House. This is a perception. Trump has been cast as either a hero or a villain in the American psyche, depending on your political leanings. And this is going to color our perception of what happens to him or things around him. So if you support him, you are likely to believe that he is an outsider and a victim, which is precisely what his entire campaign apparatus has tried to condition people to believe. And incidentally, that is a message pushed by conservative media, as told by bold headlines <laughs> proclaiming that the 2020 election was between a, quote, political outsider and, quote, a consummate D.C. insider. That's just one headline. There's literally thousands of them from the various conservative media outlets. This narrative in itself establishes a sort of tribalism, the us versus them. That's the undercurrent of every political story, every action and reaction that we see in U.S. politics right now. It's intentional because no matter which tribe you're a part of, we tend to believe that our group is acting out of love and good intent while our political foes are acting out of hate and a desire to harm us. This tribalism established, as it clearly has been, any action against the group that you're a part of can be spun up as an attack, made maliciously, intended to harm your group. This overrides the logical reasoning part of our brain because it appeals to a deeper, more instinctual part of our brains. In this case, the author can only accept the explanation that the Trump administration and staff was facing litigation because of a combined effort by the Department of Justice, the press, and, quote, the government in general. Whatever that means. And this is where, yet again, I point out the level of coordination and cooperation that such an endeavor would require. The entire government apparatus... In this claim, the entire government is essentially working in concert in order to defend itself against an intruder who will expose their shadowy grasp on power. This runs counter <laughs> to a lot of things, um, but to the general consensus among conservative thinkers that the government is largely, the word I use is incompetent, it's not exactly right, but that the, the bureaucracy only slows things down, that you can't trust the government to know what is best because it's too big, it's too far removed from the people, and therefore it's too tied up in its own infighting 
and and what it thinks, I guess institutionally, to actually serve the little people. This is a foundational belief informing not only why conservatives claim to favor small local governments, uh, but why they argue for private industry, for the privatization of as much as they possibly can. Anytime there's a large bill up for consideration in D.C., say, like the current infrastructure bill, part of the conservative argument against that will be that it is big government and an overreach. So there's this cognitive dissonance inherent in this whole thought process. Either the government is overblown and incapable of properly governing or functioning, or it's acting as a unified force against a single entity for one goal. But it can't be both incompetent and capable of a massive government-wide conspiracy. But thinking like this thread absolutely depends on mental gymnastics to avoid inconvenient, incompatible, quote, facts. And that's a lot of how this whole chain is going to work. The author looks at the way things look and makes the assumption that because something looks a certain way and makes sense through the lens with which they view the world, it therefore must be true. Simultaneously, the author and the people that the author is representing ignore the arguments to the counter because the us versus them mentality first informs the idea that they are being attacked, meaning that their perception from that point on is going to be defensive. The evil outsiders versus the noble insiders. Now, having made this argument, the author continues to go on to explain how this made them and all the people that they're speaking for feel. And this is actually one of the more important sections, not necessarily because of the actual words, but because of the subtext of the words. So here's what Cooper had to say about that. He said, they, these conservatives that he's talking about, could have managed the shock if it only involved the government but the behavior of the corporate press is really what radicalized them. They hate journalists more than they hate any politician or government official because they feel the most betrayed by them. This is profoundly disorienting, he says. Many of them don't know for certain whether ballots were faked in November 2020, but they know for absolute certain that the press, the FBI, etc., would lie to them if there was. They have every reason to believe that, and it's probably true. I know we said we weren't going to call out every single pairing in this, but this is so important. So the first fact, this one is actually fact. Many of them don't know for certain whether or not the ballots were faked in November 2020. So this literally includes everybody reading the thread. Everybody. Every conservative, every Democrat, Everybody reading the thread. Nobody knows for certain whether the ballots were faked in November 2020. A lot of people know, or rather, a lot of people strongly believe that they weren't faked. And a lot of people strongly believe that a lot of ballots were faked. But nobody knows. So this part, everybody connects to. Yeah, okay, I don't know for certain. I can't prove it. But this is a fact. I don't know that they weren't faked. I believe they were, though. And then he uses that to bring you to the next statement, which is absolutely false, 
But it sounds reasonable because that first fact that a lot of people don't know is a fact. It lends its strength to this claim, which is that the FBI, the press, would lie to them if there were a scandal about fake documents, fake ballots. That's not a fact. That is, again, a perception. It is a feeling, but it is not something that can be supported by any information that we have available to us. Nothing. There's nothing that says, oh, yeah, there's, there's no universal media agreement that says, by the way, if we find something that shows these ballots were faked, we're just going to lie and you know make sure that story doesn't get out. There, there's no fact there. Strong belief. A lot of people believe that. But the logic chain that we have discussed earlier really makes a claim like this pop and cements that idea that the, the media would lie, the FBI would lie as fact. It's, it's not. not. And he, he really relies it on is. that previous logic, too. Like, he's brought you through all these claims that he's telling you are fact, and he's given you some hints at sources. And so if you then get to this point and you've accepted that all of those things are fact then you know for certain that the press, the FBI, etc., was lying to you and would continue to do that. Right. And the deeper you get down the chain, the larger, the more bold the claims can be, the more wild, honestly, they can be without you questioning mm -hmm. it. Because you've already said yes so many times up until this point that you'll just go ahead and say yes again without really thinking about it. This is a classic sales tactic yep. get them to say yes as much as they can and they will easily more easily say yes when you really need them mm -hmm. to so he gets your buy-in gets your buy-in gets your buy-in boom big claim no support doesn't matter you have bought into this already you're more likely to believe this very very common so what we know about the tribal mentality automatically paints the us crowd, or in this case, the MAGA crowd or conservatives, if, if they don't like that label, um, as the loving, reasonable, logical actors in this scenario. And everyone else, which would be me and <laughs> right. you right now, <laughs> as, as we are now malicious and evil somehow. Because we don't, we're not part of the in crowd, we are disagreeing with it. I think this comment at least personally, I think it is critically important, if not one of the most important things that he says, because you need to understand these feelings in order to respond. They, these people who believe this, they truly feel like they've been had. They're wounded. They really are shocked because they have been so convinced of their rightness, their virtue, their the unassailable nature of their worldview that loss or setback or defeat is inconceivable therefore it is likely not real it is it, the only way they could have lost is cheating somebody had to cheat the rules were changed ignoring these emotions is a recipe for having every appeal every logical argument Every conversation, every podcast made on this <laughs> automatically resisted just right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, it shows the, the danger of emotional appeals. And again, 
how flimsy conclusions are drawn from assertions of fact to lead someone to a specific conclusion. The fact that the press worked against them, and then the emotional and even more unsubstantiated claim that, again, everyone would lie to them about the election. Everyone. Absolute certainty. But there is no evidence presented. There's no sourcing, nothing that we can backcheck, nothing to actually support this claim other than a mushy appeal to emotion. And even though we have, already I'm not going to yet again harp on how unlikely it is that a massive cabal is somehow able to work together <laughs> to keep this humongous world-impacting secret secret. Right. But I'm going to say this. A lot of people who believe this, who think like this guy does, um, the, the way he presents this, there is a simple assumption that the FBI is a rational actor. That the government is a rational actor. That large conglomerations of people somehow are a rational actor in and of themselves. But they are not. They are organizations. Organizations do not act like a school of fish. The only people who say, where we go one, we go all, are conspiracy theorists. <laughs> That's QAnon. Organizations of people have different people in them. Different beliefs, different personalities, different life experiences, different goals. Everything, individually, person to person, is different. So, while Democrats make up roughly half of the federal workforce, based on what I could find between a quarter and a third of the remaining workforce are Republicans. With a higher concentration of Republicans in positions of national security, positions that would be directly involved in this sort of operation, this sort of cover-up. If there were a vast conspiracy covering up these things, one would think that the very large Republican population of federal workers who would know about such a conspiracy would say something about it. Yeah, you, one would think. These threads really are a gift, though, because we can work through them and we can address things as they come out. To those who are willing to listen we may be able to reach an understanding and untangle the things that are factual from the things that we believe, from the ideas that are forming why we believe what we do. We're going to keep going on this thread next week with the next couple sets of claims that Cooper makes. And we hope that uh, at conservativedevguy5309, if you're listening, or anybody else who has that same perspective, who feels like this is the thing that explains why so many people felt the way that they did. We hope that you will hear us doing our best to untangle those facts from these feelings so that we can have conversations from our different perspectives about what we do next and how we move on from these things. I think in summary, just want to point out that in the first two sets of claims that we covered, 
only one set of claim had any true factual assertions, that is, things that could be researched. Um, the second set had a lot of emotional assertions, but nothing that was actually cited or sourced or had any real researchability yeah. to it, which is critical when you read things. Look at what you are reading. Step out of that us versus them mentality if you can. It's very difficult. We fail at it all the time. I'm not going to pretend like we don't. Um, and first look at what is actually being said. And the questions you should ask yourself are, can I double check this? Can I find an actual source for this? Can I verify it? If you can't easily do that, relatively, then you really need to start evaluating, you know, is this factual or is this a perception? Is this something that is uh, quantifiable, measurable, or is this more an emotional appeal? What would be the intent of this? Start asking those questions. Start looking for the contradictions. Can something be both massively disorganized and dysfunctional and have a massive conspiracy that involves everybody. Is that possible? Really think about that. If you scoffed at that assertion when we made it, tell us why. Why? Please let us know. Why would you believe that an institution that at your core you think does not serve the people well because it is dysfunctional could somehow function so flawlessly as to hide the biggest conspiracy in the world. And you can let us know <laughs> in several ways. Uh, easiest way, though, our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. You can find our show notes. You can find our shows. You can find our social media links. You can find a handy-dandy contact form to fill out and let us know why we didn't answer the things that you wanted us to answer. Or... Give us a question. Shoot us something that you want us to research or talk about. Um, you can also find a link to our Patreon there if you want to sign up and give us money to help offset the many, many, many late <laughs> nights that we spend doing this and keep our respective spouses happy with our dedication to yelling into the wind, feels like. Uh, <laughs> shoot us a couple bucks. That would be super duper cool. Um, but that's our plug now. That's, that's it. it. We, got know, we got a website. It links to yeah. our socials. You can find us on social media, but the easiest way to do anything is go yeah. to the website. Uh, shout out to the five people who visited our website from Sweden in the last couple of weeks and the two from South Korea. Like, hey, that's cool. What's up? Shoot us a line. Hey, Let us know how you found us because that's really cool. Um, all right. Good news. Good news news this week yes. suni lee became the first asian american woman to win an olympic gold medal for all-around performance at the tokyo olympic games um she became the first asian american woman to win the gold medal for all-around performance and she did it at the tokyo games i realized that i kind of strung all that together and it didn't seem quite clear <laughs> as big right? as a big a deal yeah, no, as like it's a really big was. deal i promise guys <laughs> There was another one in Rio. No, no, no. Yeah. 
Exactly. First one ever. If you are not super familiar with how gymnastics works, especially at an Olympic level, individual competitors can win medals for their performances in each different event, but the all-around winner is evaluated for a combination of scores across all of the events in the competition. And she won the all-around, the first Asian-American woman to do that. Uh, she's also the first Hmong-American woman to qualify for the U.S. Olympic team and to win an Olympic um gymnastics gold medal. Hmong Americans are those whose families have made their way to the United States from the country of Laos. And Suni and her family are part of one of the largest, if not the largest, Hmong communities in the United States uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is where I grew up. And I will verify that my eighth grade yearbook um, had very, very, very many wins in it. Uh, there were more of them than there were of Olson's and Anderson's, which in Minnesota is a real big deal. Wow. I know um, the history of the, the Hmong diaspora really um, is, well, it's tragic, but it's also mm -hmm. fascinating. It is very, very awesome to see the, um, the community brought into the spotlight by the, by the success of SUNY Lee. This makes me yes. very happy. I think it's great. It's super cool. Um, yeah. And also, I'm just going to tag on here because I, we have a platform and I can. Um, very happy to see Simone Biles step forward and make the very tough decision that she had to make for her own health and put her own health first. Um, I think it's an inspirational um i guess another example uh of of leadership uh, especially out of our our athletes and our olympians um i can't imagine how stinking difficult that was but i think it is something that should be celebrated because we have a very long and very messed up history of shoving our mental health into a dark corner mm -hmm. in America and ignoring it because uh, other people have told us to do it. So I am fully supportive of her. I hope she makes a rapid recovery from the twisties. It sounds absolutely terrifying <laughs> from yes. what I've read about it. I can only imagine what it must be like to be 15 feet up in the air off of a parallel bar and spinning around and suddenly lose where you are, you know, so, or an uneven bar, I guess, or anything. So, uh, yeah, that's a totally different story. Don't want to bring down the good news, but I do want to throw it in here because this is our podcast. Yeah. And I can well, and it is good news. It is, it is uh. great news that, that Simone Biles as an individual and that her coaches and her team members are such strong advocates for the well-being of athletes, especially female athletes, that they were all collectively willing to make what could have been an incredible sacrifice for her mental health. So that is great news. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We should all remember that our safety, our well-being, including our mental well-being, is more important than a job, than a gold medal, than anything else because if you sacrifice that if you start burning that very very precious expendable resource of your health to satisfy somebody else's goal or even your own goal 
you're going to end up in a very bad place. I mean, it could totally wreck your life. So that goes to everybody, <laughs> not just our Olympic level athletes, but those of us who kill ourselves working overtime, who are workaholics for God knows what reason. There's a million. Robin and I are looking in the mirror right now um, for any number of reasons. Um, take care of your health. And thank you so much for listening. Be sure to take care of each other.